If you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Don't just don't stand up just yet. I want to give you a little bit of preface before we read. I don't want you to miss what's going on for all the words. Paul's about to get pretty wordy as we begin to talk about the law. But it's interesting here that Paul feels the need to talk about the law right in the middle of the chapters in Romans that are all about sanctification. And so there's a lot of work for us to do in understanding how the law works through this process of sanctification or being made Christ-like. What I'm about to read is he's going to outline two things for us. Number one, how the law works. And he's going to describe how the law interacts with our lives, bringing about conviction as well as pointing us toward Christ. But before he does that, in the first part about what I'm reading, it's very unusual. He talks about how we need to be released from the law or delivered from the law. And that should fascinate us because it's God who has given us the law, yet we have to be delivered from the law. And of course, you know, the only thing that ever sets us free is the gospel. But Paul wants to demonstrate our deliverance through an illustration, something else that's pretty unique by the Apostle Paul. And it's an illustration about marriage and the death of a spouse. So please don't get lost in all that I read, because I will, Lord willing, explain it at least over this week, if not the next couple of weeks. But at any rate, if you're in Romans 7, please stand with me. And I'll read down through verses 13. And then following our reading, we will worship God for having His Word and for hearing His Word this morning. So let me remind you then that this is the very Word of God. Paul writes in verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the death or the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another. To him, in fact, who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, or before we were converted... The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law, having died to that to which we were bound, so that we may serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? No, may it never be. On the contrary, rather, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. 
For sin, taking an opportunity through the law or the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? No, may it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Now, I'll tell you, especially this week and perhaps next week too, the sermon is not going to be very sermony, if you know what that word means. It's going to be more instructional. I was thinking about the song this week of Onward Christian Soldiers, and I don't know really of a better way to describe who we are. Because when you come to faith in Christ, you go to the battlefield for the rest of your days. And you will fight on a number of different battlefronts, but the most intense battlefront, the most critical battlefront that you'll ever fight on is the battle with your own personal sin. And so that's what Paul is taking up in 6 and 7 and 8. And he's really training us for warfare. I can't send out a group of soldiers onto the battlefield with a pep talk or a sermon that's warm and fuzzy that motivates you and excites you for battle. If I don't send you out prepared, you're going to be killed during the battle. And so we have to be very careful. We know how disciples are made through teaching them all things, right? But when it comes to our battle with sin, we really need to understand some things. And so that's why we're going to get even more serious than we were before, if it is even possible, so that we can begin to understand some things, particularly what we're talking about the next couple of weeks is the law. Now, if y'all have been here for any length of time, you know how the law fascinates me. I get into it and I can't seem to get out of it. And it, it's just been a constant study for the last several years in our life or my life rather. But you have to understand, if you don't understand the law, you don't understand the gospel. If you can better understand the law, you will better understand the gospel. We're in the book of Romans, and that is the letter about the gospel. This is the one book that talks about the gospel from beginning to end. And when you begin to open it up and study, you realize that Paul uses the word law almost 50 times. You see, in our mind, when we get to the gospel, we're removed from the law. But we have to be careful. That's not exactly what's going on. The law still plays a role. The law played a significant, crucial, critical role in bringing us to the gospel. But it continues to play a role in our life. But when we talk about the law today, some people have dismissed it altogether. Some people dismiss it by this idea, well, we're not Jews God gave the law of Moses to the Jews, and since we're not Jews, we're Gentiles, that has nothing to do with us. Of course, no one in this room believes that. We've been in the text long enough to understand the critical role the law plays and this new relationship that we'll talk about that we have with the law now through the gospel. But you have to understand, even if that's your viewpoint, that the law of Moses has nothing to do with us, you're forgetting about the law that was written on your heart that Paul talks about in Romans 2. And we're in Romans 2, I use the analogy or the illustration rather of adultery. You really need the law to tell you that adultery is wrong. I would submit to you that you can go to any culture, any context, any people groups on the planet. 
and be inappropriate toward another man's wife and see his anger rise up because that man knows what you're doing is wrong. He doesn't have to be a Christian to realize that. And so we know that even though as Gentiles we might not have been handed down the Ten Commandments, God has yet done something in our hearts so that we understand that there are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. And when we do those things that are wrong, we usually hide. You see, the law has been at work in our life, whether we are a Buddhist or whether we were an unbelieving atheist or agnostic or whether we were a Christian. The law has some effect. But I think before we get finished with this, there is one thought that I'm still dwelling on, meditating on as I go through years. There is not necessarily a law, but there's a moral standard that some of you might be holding on to right now rather than a relationship with Christ. And this is the sneakiest one. Because there's so many people that profess faith in Christ, but the only thing that they do to demonstrate that Christianity is hold to some sort of Christian moral ethic. In other words, they dress right. When they're in a particular group of people, they talk right. They use Christian ease as a language. They throw around a few terms. They don't do certain things. They try to be seen doing other things. And they profess to know Christ. You see, you in effect are living up to a law. It's just a law that's better described as a moral ethic or a standard, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Now I'll tell you, that is the, one of the most frustrating, mind-numbing places that you can ever be in, and I bet you there's a large number of us have been there at some point in our life. So if we can understand how this works in relationship to our sanctification, this can really set us free to run and rejoice in a relationship with Jesus. So we really need to understand what's going on here. Now, I always do the flow, and I, usually I mention this, but let me go deeper in mentioning this this morning. I get a number of people, and if you're one of them, I, I'm not trying to discourage you, but I get a number of people that, that want to know some devotional, something to read, something to do. Don't do that. Do more with less. The things that we're going through are super difficult. And there's a handful of you that listen to the sermon again. And I realize my sermons are not entertaining. I realize that. I'm trying to teach you. But if you'll listen to it again and again and again and open the text and make notes and write questions, you would be surprised how the Holy Spirit carries you further and deeper along, allowing you to bear more fruit in your life. Don't make the mistake of eating from a dozen different trees in the garden. Sit down under one tree and enjoy its fruit until you know what it tastes like and really enjoy the flavor of it, okay? So for those of you who already do this, this is what I always do for you. Let me lay out the path that Paul is taking in Romans 7 because you can really see what Paul is doing in Romans 7 where other places is a little bit difficult. But Paul loves to drop breadcrumbs sprinkled about so that you can see where he's taking you in his argument. This is an argument after all. And one of the, the best breadcrumbs that Paul drops is back in Romans chapter 5. Look back with me at Romans chapter 5 verse 18. I'll pick up 18 and I'll run down through 20. You remember back in Romans 5, Paul is laying out the differences and the similarities between Adam and Jesus. He wants you to see the impact these two men have had on our lives. And he, we draw from that that you this morning are either in Jesus or you're in Adam. 
And Adam has done some things to you just because you were born in the line of Adam. Now, if you'll notice with me in verse 18, Paul writes this, So then, as through one transgression in reference to the sin of Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men. And so when we talked about that when we went through Romans, Romans 5, through what Adam did, we were condemned. There's something else that Adam did in the very next verse, verse 19, for through the one man or Adam's disobedience, the many were made what? Sinners. So we begin to understand what Paul is explaining there and what the, the effect that Adam had on our life. And one of the most profound effects that Adam had on our life is he made you a sinner. He didn't make you likely to be a sinner. He didn't make you maybe you're going to be a sinner. You were born a sinner because of what took place in Adam. But God carried it even further. It wasn't just enough that He made you a sinner. God did something more to drive us further down into our sin. So notice this breadcrumb in verse 20. The law came in. He just drops this in the middle here. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. In other words, Adam made you a sinner, but God pressed you down into your sin through giving you the law. And so Paul wants to explain to us how that takes place. So once you get over into Romans 7 through 13, he deals with the subject of how the law increased sin in your life. In fact, look at the very last phrase of verse 13. Very last words. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. In other words, Adam made you a sinner, but God gave you the law to make that sin utterly sinful. Sinful. He pressed you down even further. But look back at verse 20 because that's not all that he says in relationship to the law. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There's two things there that you just need to chew on in regard to this breadcrumb that Paul gave you. The law accomplished two tremendous things when God gave us the law. In other words, he made sin utterly sinful indistinguishably rebellion against God. But at the same time, the further the law pressed down sin, what was happening to grace on the other side? You see, it was the law that made grace so amazing. Because at the same time, it was making sin so awful. And so God did something precious for us in giving the law. And Paul's like, I've got to explain that to you. I'll drop it here, but I'll bring it back up when I get to seven. There's another breadcrumb that Paul drops for us. Look over in chapter 6. Look at verse 14. Paul is describing grace and how grace has delivered us from sin. And he gets to verse 14 and he jumps back to the law and he says, Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And he draws this contrast because in 6 he deals with grace, but in 7 he's going to deal with law. And this morning, you are in one of those two places. You are either under grace or you are under law. Now, if you're under grace, when you stand before God in the judgment, what Jesus did on your behalf, He will declare you not guilty. That's how grace works. But if you're still under law, when you stand before God in the judgment... There is no one who has gone before you. There is no one who has rescued you from what you have done. So therefore, you are morally culpable and liable for your sin. And you're still under judgment and you will be met with the wrath of God. So you're either in grace or under law. And Paul says, I got to get you out of that law and show you how God delivered you from the law. 
and into grace. And so that's what he does in the first half of chapter or the first half of Romans 7. He shows how the gospel delivers us from the law that God has given to us. So listen, just like I told you this, and I'll go back to it. Romans 6 is all principles in regard to grace. But when you get to Romans 7, it's all principles in regard to law, and they're principles that we really have to understand. Now, if you'll notice the last, and I'll be through introducing this, and we'll kind of jump into this. If you'll notice the last half of 7, you've got a subtitle there. Probably most of your Bibles have it, The Conflict of Two Natures. I don't think that's helpful. By the way, that is not a part of Scripture that was added much later to help us along, but I don't think it's much helpful. In fact, verses 14 through 25 are some of the most debated passages that you're going to find in the book of Romans. I think we've been debating this since it was written down. So if you have time this week, spend some time in 14 through 25, and I'll hopefully be able to show you. The argument is, is this guy making this conversation, is this guy saved or unsaved? But I would submit to you, that's not even what Paul's talking about. But hopefully, Lord willing, we'll deal with that next week. Now remember, all of this comes from one question. Romans 6 started with a question. If you'll look back from verse 1, we'll go back over the question real quickly so you can see that. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And I told you this, that this is more than likely the one question that Paul had to deal with everywhere he went. Every time he sat down with a Jew and began debating the gospel, this is the question that he had to deal with. Paul, are you really going to set aside the law and say that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? And then they would chuckle, Paul, do you really think grace is going to keep you from sinning? To which Paul would answer, absolutely, that's everything that God has done to keep us from sinning. But here's a question that I've been playing over and over in my mind again as we've talked about this the last few weeks. How does grace keep you from sinning? I really want you all to be able to answer that. In fact, I would love to ask you that on Wednesday night and all the hands go up because I want, to be, I want you to be able to answer that that quickly. And the answer is found in verses 4 through 11. If you're taking notes and jot it down, you can study it, but I've talked about it the last two weeks. You see, what God has done through the gospel is He's made us one with Christ. And I've said this over and over again, when Christ died, what happened to you? You died. And not only did you die when Christ died, but your old man died. Your old ways died. Your flesh died when Christ died. In the mind of God, legally. That's what happened to your old man. But at the same time, according to God, in the mind of God, legally, when Christ was raised from the dead, you too were raised from the dead. And now you, hold, you have an entirely new life, a life that is resourced or sourced rather and found in Christ, who is the very source of all life, right? So when I ask you, has grace rescued you from your sin? You would say, without question. And I would say, well, how so? Oh, you don't understand, you would say. Because when he died, I died. My old man, my flesh died the day Jesus died. In fact, I was buried with him, Romans 6 says. And here's the purpose of that. In order that when Jesus was raised from the dead, I was raised to a new man. I was born again. So yes, grace does rescue us 
continually from sin. Not just the day where we're converted. Grace is the way that you're rescued from your sin. Now that doesn't make sense to you. In fact, I've had to say that like three or four times and I keep having to ask myself, all right, Joey, explain to yourself how the grace rescues you from sin because that's not the default of what man is. That is not how the world thinks. You see, we are convinced that we need rules and we need laws in order to restrain sin. In fact, this is what the Jews thought about the law. God gave us the law in order to restrain sin in our life, in order for us to meet some standard and earn eternal life. That was the Jewish thinking of the law. But you do realize that all of our lost culture thinks exactly the same way. If it comes to religion, they think that we need to prove ourselves worthy to God by our good deeds in order that He might save us. That's your default. And again, the reason is all of life is based on meeting some sort of standard. You want to be on the ball team? Well, if you good enough, if you're good enough, if you meet the standard, you can be on the ball team. Well, I would like to start. Oh, if you want to start, if you meet the standard, you can be a starting player on the ball team, right? Well, I'm in the 11th grade. I'd love to go to the 12th grade. Well, if you meet the standards of the 11th grade, we'll let you go on to the 12th grade. Well, I would love to go to college too. Okay. Well, if you meet the standard according to the test, the ACT or your final GPA, then you'll be able to go on to college. You see how this works? If you want a raise at work, if you want a new higher position, how do you get there? Well, if you meet the standards, then we'll let you have the new position and you'll get better pay. During marriage counseling, you guys do realize that's exactly how you picked your spouse. It's a very unbiblical way, by the way. You had a standard. You had a list of things that you were looking for. And if you could find somebody to meet that standard, you were all interested. But if they did not meet that standard, I'm not interested. You see, everything that we do, our whole life is created around this one thought, right? So when we come to a relationship with God, what's the default? I've just got to figure out the standard, meet the standard, and then I'll be accepted by God. And God's like, that is not why I gave you the law. The only reason I gave you the law, or the most significant reason I gave you the law, to show you without a shadow of a doubt that you can never meet my standard. You have the law in order for you to look at it and go, God, it's impossible for me to meet your righteous standard. But it forces us to do the very thing that God wants us to do, and that's to run to Him and trust Him to provide a way for us. And so that's why we desperately need to understand how this law works. Which brings us to the function of the law. So let's see how the law works exactly in bringing us to Christ. First thing that it does is it defines sin for us. Look at verse 7 of Romans chapter 7. Paul writes, what should we say then is the lost sin meant never be on the contrary. I would not have come to know sin except through the law for I would not have come to know about or I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. Right. See what this law has done is clearly define what's right, what's wrong, what's black, what's white. 
What is the standard of God and what is not the standard of God? Before then, it was simply just written on your hearts. As I said, you knew adultery was wrong. Nobody ever had to tell you that. Nobody had to even tell kids that. It's without question wrong. And again, like I said, that's why you hide it when you do that. But when God wrote it down on a piece of paper and he puts that in your face and you realize not only does God judge that, the law says you deserve death for that. And now no longer is it a question in your heart. What does the world run around saying? Oh, what's right for you may not be right for me. That's silliness to God. What God has said is right, and that indeed is right. And what God has said is wrong is indeed wrong. He doesn't care how you factor it, how you figure it, or what you think about it. What the law says comes from the hand of God, and it's true, unalterable, inarguable. And so God says, well, let me define it for you clearly. Let me write this down. And so when we receive the law, we need to understand that we're receiving a measure, a tremendous measure of grace. Do you remember what God said to his people after he gave them the law? Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And you go, well, what's holiness, God? I gave you that in the law. I defined it for you in the law. And we'd say, and I'll probably say a number of times over the next couple of weeks, when we look at the law, we see the character of God. Before then, and you think about the world today, you ask anybody what God is like, and they'll give you some random ideas, some thoughts, some opinions that are shaped from Oprah, the culture, social media, and their own desires are in their heart, and they'll fashion their God. But God's like, no, I wrote it down for you. And I described my character in great detail for you. And it's written down on the pages of Scripture. So we praise God for the law because the first thing that it does is it defines the law. But the second purpose in the giving of the law is to uncover sinfulness within us. It uncovers it and it forces it to bear fruit. Notice with me in verse 8. But sin... Taking opportunity through the law, through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Now, don't get lost in the illustration. I use a different illustration here in thinking about this. Because sin is like a dragon that slumbers in your soul. And you know what the law is? That 5 a.m. alarm. And you just can't get the thing shut off. And the last thing you want to do is wake up the dragon. Because there's only one thing a dragon does. And he creates death and destruction everywhere he goes. And so Paul uses the illustration of dead and life. It's sitting in there, but when it stands face to face with the law, it's just like sin is just all of a sudden awake and active, aroused, angered, and he goes to work. I'll give you an example of this. Littering is wrong. Y'all know that? It's not wrong, dude, to roll down your window and chuck out your bottle. But yet, I have to pick up bottles all the way down my bank of my pond all the time. And I'm like, really? I mean, who does this? But people do it all the time. So I was driving yesterday and I was on that road that cuts from Dutton Road over to Highway 35. 
and I saw a sign that says do not litter. I didn't even know we had one in Jackson County. But we got a do not litter sign on the side of the road in Jackson County. I was like, wow, I never noticed that. So you cut through that road. You know, that's the road that Zion Baptist Church is on. You know, and you go all the way down through there, and there's a little bit, little something here, a little something there, Coke can here, a little piece of plastic there. But when you get up to that do not litter sign, it's just absolutely clear on both sides of the road. You believe that? Not on your life. It looks like a trash dump under that sign. I mean, that, that road runs for, I don't know, a couple miles, two or three miles, what? And the highest concentration of trash is within 30 feet of that sign. And if you get that mental picture, you'll know exactly how the law works. Do not litter. And you start rolling down your window and just looking for something to throw out the window. You see, that's how the law works. It arouses or awakens the dragon within us and it forces us to do what sin is going to do and sin is going to rebel. And if it had not been for the law, sin would not have been as active within our life and we would not have understood the thing that was keeping us from God because God really wanted to show us what it was that was keeping us from being saved, that was keeping us under His judgment. I liken the law to one of the medical tests, like an MRI. Been sick, got all these symptoms, don't know what's going on. All right, let's stick you in this tube and do an MRI. And they find the reason behind all of the symptoms that's going on in your life. There it is, just as pretty as a picture. And you go in the doctor's office and go, here it is. And he circles it. That's what's causing all your problems. That's what the law does to the sin in our life. It not only uncovers it, but then it forces it since it's been awakened to be active and do what sin does. And that's to bring about death. You think about the idea of murder. Happens to be one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. And the first thing that we do, we do is we examine that law from an outside perspective. And we go, well, I haven't done that. By the way, if you've done that, don't feel too bad. Let's see. Moses did that. David did that. There's a number of people in the Bible who actually did that. But we look at that law and we checkmark that and we go, no, I haven't done that. But what does Jesus do when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount? He's like, no, no, you have not let the law sink down deep enough in you to awaken sin. You have heard it says you shall not commit murder. But I say, if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty. And you're like, what? Yes, yeah, so you see, the sin not, doesn't just work out here. The law works, no, I said sin, the law doesn't just work out in here. The law works way down in here because it wants to raise sin up, so to speak, from the dead and make it active within us. Now, let me ask you a question. Has any of you ever been angry with your brother? According to scriptures, according to the command of God, you're guilty before God. You remember what you're supposed to do if you're angry with your brother? Oh, if you've come to worship... Leave it. Go running out the door. Reconcile to your brother. Then come back in here and worship. Don't roll up here and worship God when you've been angry with your brother. Do I need to pause and give a little break here so people can leave? You see what the law does? Jesus would carry it further. You shall not commit adultery. Everybody goes up, oh, check, hadn't done it. Praise the Lord. Jesus said, all oh, wait. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, 
If you've looked at a woman lustfully, you're dead to rights. See how the law works? The law is going to awaken or arouse that sin within your heart. That's why I think Paul picked the subject of coveting here in Romans 7. Because when you covet, you do realize you can't check that because covet in Hebrew can be translated desire. See what it says in the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet or desire your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your desire, or desire your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet or desire his servants or his ox or his donkey. You shall not covet or desire anything that belongs to your neighbor. And all of a sudden, I can't check that box because desire has something with inside of me that I've got to examine more closely. And if I take enough time to examine it, you'll go, wait a minute, I'm coveting all over the place, which is Paul's conclusion in Romans 7. I can't help but covet. It's like all I want to do. Everything I see, I go, well, that's better than mine. Well, that's cooler than mine. Well, that car's faster than mine. Well, their house is bigger than mine. And God says, you see what the law does? It's awakening something in you that's always been there. And he sets it loose and he unchanges it to do what it always does. Look at verse 5 again. For while you, Romans 7, 5, while, while you were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were awakened, I like that word better, awakened by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. The law was a gift of grace so that we could see that the only thing we're ever producing is death. You're not going to meet some righteous standard of God. You can't be good enough to be accepted by God. The only thing that you've got going on in your life apart from Jesus is you're producing death. You're being very effective at producing death and more death. So the law does this, right? It defines sin and uncovers sin. And then lastly, what the law does in function of the law is it intensifies sin. Look at verse 13. Romans 7, verse 13. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me. Did the, did the law cause death? May it never be, rather it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good or the law, so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. In other words, now that you have the law, you know. Now that you have the law, you understand. And now that you have the law, what you do that is wrong is unexplainable and terrible. In fact, uh, R.C. Sproul calls it cosmic treason against God. And you had no idea that you stood that guilty before God if we had not been given the law. You would think if you knew the law, you would stop. You would think if you saw a sign, a simple sign on the side of the road that says, do not litter, you'd stop the car with a trash bag, get out and clean it up because you would not want God's moral law offended. But that's not what goes on in our lives at all. We hear that about morality, you know, do not be immoral. And so rather than cleaning up all the immorality in our life and repenting from all of it, we just hide it. And continue to do it. And God goes, oh, look at that sin now. It's being intensified by the law because you know better. 
And rather than repenting and stopping, you're just hiding and continuing. You see, we desperately need the law. And the law does some very dirty work in our lives, but that has no bearing whatsoever on its character. And Paul's really concerned about the reputation of God's law in his gospel. And he says a number of things, right? And we've said a number of things too. We know from the Old Testament that the law is a reflection of the character of God. But listen, Paul's gospel that I said was grace alone through faith alone sets aside the law. And you have to understand the Jews love the law. You never meet a Jew that wasn't absolutely in love with the law of God. And so you meet this man preaching a way, a way of salvation and he's setting aside seemingly the law of God and you're angry about it. And if you want to know why Paul was stoned, most of the time it was over this issue. You're discrediting the law of God. Don't you dare do that. Paul would never do that. In fact, he's very emphatic. Look at verse 7 here. What then shall we say is the law sin? Notice the emphasis. May it never be on the contrary. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that the law is sin. Look at verse 13. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Did that law which is good become a cause for death for me? May it never be! Exclamation point. Paul's like, that's not what I'm doing with the law. The law is good. But it's shining a light on everything in your life that is not good. And something has to do that. In fact, look how he describes the law in verse 12. So then, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul is just stacking up words so that we can see, even though the law does some terribly dirty work in our lives, the law itself is unaffected by our lives because the law is from God. As I said earlier, it's a reflection of God. We don't hate the law. And there's an idea in Christianity between Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament's got to be cut off and the Old Testament needs to be set aside. The law, no, you don't understand what you're talking about. It was the precious law that brought us to Jesus. And Paul's going to explain that for us too as well in Romans chapter 7. But nonetheless, we still had to be delivered from the law. We still had to be rescued from a gift of God that is so good. Notice verse 4 of Romans chapter 7. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body or the death of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. In other words, Paul says, you've got to be rescued from the law, even though God gave you the law. And we need to begin to understand why it was so necessary that, that God gave us the law, right? It revealed that sin. It magnified that sin in our life. But the law requires death for sin. And so law acted like law and law puts you in a prison cell and law locked the door. And it held you captive there until we were rescued by the death and the resurrection of the Son of God. Because when Jesus died, He took the keys to the prison and He unlocked the door and He opened the door. You see, if you understand the law, you'll worship Jesus all the more. Because nobody could get the prison cell open. I mean, we were on death row. And rightly so, because we had rebelled against the law. And in the perfections of the law, it held us imprisoned, waiting judgment until someone could come 
and set us free. And when Jesus dies, listen, we die to the law. And when Jesus was raised, we walked out of that prison cell to newness of life. That's why Paul gives this illustration in, in verses 1 through 3. It's funny, people turn here to talk about marriage and it, it, it doesn't have anything to do with marriage. Paul's like, I'm just trying to draw up an illustration for you. And the illustration makes sense. Any culture, any people groups on the planet, if a husband and wife marry, it's until death do you part. That's accepted. And so if one spouse runs off and joins with another person, they're considered an adulterer, a lawbreaker, a, rebe a rebel, a violator of the law, right? And the only way that they can get out of that is through death. And so if one spouse dies, the law is still fulfilled because the marriage covenant was until death do you part, right? And so God says, I've married you to the law. And you're not getting out of that marriage until there is death. And God says, but don't worry, I've provided the death. There's so many good things that come to us through the gospel. We could not possibly ever reach the summit of that mountain. When Jesus died, you were delivered from sin. When Jesus died, you were delivered from death. When Jesus died, you were delivered from the law. And now that your former spouse, so to speak, has died, now you're free to remarry. And you're joined to Christ. And He has satisfied the law. And He has met the requirements of the law. What I love about Paul is no matter where he goes, he's going to get back to the gospel and he's going to glorify God. But that brings me to my last point. What is the purpose in being set free? What is the purpose in even knowing all this? Well, it's the very same purpose in understanding grace and knowing grace and what God has accomplished through grace. Look back at chapter 6, verse 4. Romans 6, verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with Jesus through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Remember that? We seem to celebrate salvation and stop. And I really don't know why that is. That is not even bringing us to the purpose of our salvation. And when you get to Romans 6, you understand the purpose of grace and the purpose of salvation is so that you might walk in a way that glorifies God. You might live in a way that glorifies God. You might live in newness of life. Don't ever ask the question, wonder why God saved me. He saved you in order that you might live like Him and walk like Him and reflect His character. But you do realize that the law was given to us and we were set free from the law for exactly the same reason. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that, what? We might serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter. He comes right back to the same place. Now let me sum all this up and I'll be finished this morning because I realize these are heavy things and they're difficult. You have to, you have to sit and chew on them for a while. But you're in one or two places this morning since we're on the subject of the law. You're either in grace or under the law. And there's nothing about that that can change. 
you cannot change that situation in and of yourself. Like I said earlier, you will stand before God having not been born again and you will be held accountable by the law of God for every sin. And I will carry it even farther for every thought and desire that you lingered with. And you are morally accountable for all of that. Or you'll find yourself in Christ understanding that His death paid for every bit of that. His death paid for every sin thing I did, every sin thing I thought, every sin thing I said. If Christ sets you free, you are free indeed beyond measure. But don't sit there if you've trusted in Christ and rest in some sort of salvation because there was purpose behind Him saving you. He saved you in order that you might be made like Him. He saved you in order that you might rise up a new man and walk in the Spirit and in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means a changed life. And if you want to know the things in your life that need to change, just study the law. No longer as a standard, but as the wisdom of God and the character of God. And when you read those things, right? When you read those things about adultery, oh, we realize, oh, this is not just about adultery. No, this is about sexual immorality. And you begin to examine all the things in your life and you go, oh, I need to repent here. I need to repent here. I need to repent here, not because I'm trying to be accepted by God, but because I've already been accepted through the work of Christ. And now I want my life to look new. And when we get to chapter 8, there's power He's put in you called the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit who gives you that power. But see, without the law, you wouldn't know any of that. Without the law, you would be short in worshiping Christ. But because we have the law, we have even a greater reason to worship Christ and to live like Christ. Let's pray.